When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holler at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. What's up with it? GLA double dollar sign each side. That's right, your big homie glasses, Malone. And I just skipped class, which I never do for the progress report. Yeah, and I got an A-plus on that bitch, nigga. Straight up. The progress report. All right, what's good, y'all? It's your fave McFly, and welcome to Skipping Class. And today we have the Loke, the one and only Glasses himself. How are you doing today? I'm all right. Like Marty McFly? Yep. I like that. Yep. McFly. Okay. You got to know what to get you for Christmas. Period. I get you them Nikes. Yes. And you know Back to the Future number two is my favorite, so. The second one? The second one is the best one, Period. The first one is the best one. What? You didn't like when he went and saw his uh, his older self with his wife and all that? I love that. That's because you just, then women are like, y'all just love to see y'all self. Oh, okay. I, I, like, I like the first one a lot of them. Yeah, they try, I seen a little fake, a mock poster where they was trying to redo it and it had Robert De Niro. Oh, and it, he kind of did look like it and he had another dude who's Marty McFly. I wouldn't mind seeing it redone. Nah, I need Michael J. I need, I need, I need Michael. I can't. Mm-mm. You didn't fuck with the. Uh, no. You didn't fuck with the Karate Kid, the second one, with Jaden no. Smith? No. Oh, my gosh, no. What about Jackie Chan as Mr. Miyagi? That was cool. That was cute. But not Jaden Smith as no. Karate Kid. You need no. your white man. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I need the original, please. You need please. the Valley Karate? Give me the, the white man, please. So, let's start by speaking about how we know each other. How long, how long would you say we've known each other? Probably about 15 years. About <clears throat> 2008. I think we met in around 2008. Shout out to Il Camille. One of the dopest femcs on the West. Yeah. Period. At her video, at her very first video shoot is where we uh, met. And I, I used to think Il Camille was so dope as a female rapper. I was like, man, this motherfucker nice. She reminded me of Lauren Hill as a female MC. Facts. She's really dope. That I would I would agree with that. Facts. She definitely gives like Lauren Hill, like homegirl. Facts. You know what I'm saying? Like Lauren Hill that you can relate to for sure. Yeah, and she yeah. just a lot of power in her voice. So shout out to Il Camille. For sure, I agree with that. Thank you for that. That's dope. Okay, so talk about you. Talk about growing up in LA. How was it? So I grew up in Compton and Watts because my mom and my dad broke up when I was younger. So my mom kept a residence in Compton. My dad moved to Watts and met another woman, or the woman he you know broke up with my mom to be with, and they bought a house in Watts. And um, it was pretty much spent going back and forth. So many days in Compton. In Compton, I grew up in the Richland Farms, right? So I knew how to ride a horse when I was six. Um, I knew how to swim since I was six. Uh, it was a great experience, a lot of fun. Uh, going to watch was the same way. It wasn't horses and, and uh, swimming pools, but right. the sense of community was really strong. The sense of depending on each other and watch is really strong. It just was an amazing experience, like a... I wouldn't trade it in for the world, you know what I mean? It, it really defines my blackness in a way that a lot of people don't like, but it, it helps me understand exactly what some of, some people are really going through. I never look at it differently or look down on anybody because of those experiences. Yeah, that's dope. That's dope. So a lot of people think that growing up in Watts, Compton, L.A., it's like menace to society. 
Would you consider that to be an accurate depiction of how it was growing up in L.A. and Compton? I mean, it has its boys in the hood and menaces society moments, but pretty much every day is Friday. The movie Friday? Yeah. Okay. Every day is pretty much the film Friday, the film The Wood. It's pretty much fun for the most part, but right. you know, there are those moments where you know, Ferris kill Ricky. Sometimes that happens. Okay, so tell me about your, your experience and your upbringing in living in Watts versus living in Compton. So explain to me what the differences were. I know you had the, the horses and learned how to swim, but sure. what were the, the, the differences in growing up in each house? Uh, the poverty in Watts is just different. Yeah, it's four housing projects, so um, people really band together completely different in Watts. They really only can depend on each other. You know okay. what I mean? Um, Compton is a little bit more fluent, but even, you know, once you cross the bridge and go up to Acacia, mm-hmm. Acacia Block, or Spooktown, Compton Crip, any of those gangs, it is a level of poverty, but in Watts is just a little bit deeper. You know what I mean? People really, you know, are, are having economic problems. There are limited opportunities. Same for Compton, but even more in Watts. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's really different. You know what I mean? But, the way I would classify them is how much people really have to stick together and watch to get through versus Compton. Compton people, they stick together, but, you know, most houses were pretty much self-dependent. And Watts, you know, some people didn't eat unless another family provided other opportunities and looked out for their kids. You know, and that wasn't Compton. It was just more in Watts. Yeah. So people have to stick together a lot more in Watts, mm-hmm. you know, than any place I've been to in Los Angeles. Okay. All right. That's that's pretty true. My mom is from Watts, so I totally understand that. Oh. So, the LOC. That's you, right? Yeah, the LOC. The LOC. So, tell me how gang life, sh- how it shaped you as an adult. Well, I, I know we use the term gangs, but, I mean, it's really your friends. And it just showed me how to really, you know, you have your friends' backs. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, that's all gangbanging really is, is... You, you really do everything with your friends. If y'all trying to come up, y'all all trying to come up. If one is hustling, we all hustling. If one person, you know, came up on some, on some way for us to earn some money, then he put everybody on. And that's kind of what gang life is all about, is we do everything together, you know, above the law and below the law, you know what I'm saying, together. Um, People get, become a lot more than friends. They become family. So when something happens to somebody, you take it, you know, with a different kind of attitude. And, you know, you, you, you're willing to deliver justice in, in those people's names. That's all. It's not, that's the simplest way to put gangbanging. It's this really close-knit family, group of friends that the law is not the, the centerpiece of justice. You know, we, you know, people in their lifestyle have their own you know, laws and justice. Okay. So people in the South, they view California as just Crips or Bloods, right? It's just gangs. You can't wear red. You can't wear blue. People really think like, okay, when I come out here, I got to wear other colors because it's going to be an issue. Why do you think gang life is so normalized in California? And why do you think it's looked at the way that it is from people in the South or up North? They see it that way because of Hollywood. If you learn something about, you know, people through a film, like you might 
there's a lot of black people who think they understand mafia life because they've seen the films or they read a book. And then there's the real version of mafia life that the Italians or the Irish folks, the mob, the people use. Mm -hmm. So same thing for uh, street life in Los Angeles. It's been put on television and you see the film Colors and you think everything is rocket or high top. You know what I mean? So it's a common thing, you know. It's, but even in sports, is like that. People watch ESPN and see the highlights of a basketball game, a one-minute highlight reel, and uh, announcer talking about it, and you thought the game was the most exciting thing. But, you know, just like a film, ESPN Sports Center, you know, they kind of just focus on the highlights. And that's what the movie Colors did. That's what the film Boys in the Hood did. They just focused on the highlights. And so most people around the country think they know the game because they watch the highlights. This is true. This is true. Okay, so your name Glasses Malone. Where did that come from? I can't see. You it was can't a joke. Yeah. My name was Glasses Low from 7th Street. So it became Glasses because I had a pair of glasses that I broke. And I tied shoestrings around them to keep them up. And then I lost them. And then I was squinting all the time. And where's your glasses at? And then that became the joke. It was like, man, your name is Glasses. And then you start fighting people and, you know, not telling on people, you know, surviving shootouts, being okay, and your name starts to carry respect. And, you know, I wasn't going to change my name because I went through too much to build it in the streets already. But I definitely could have came up with much better rapper names than Glasses, you know what I'm saying, if I was trying. I would have had me a cool name like these niggas, you know. I could have named myself the Brick Wall or something, some stupid shit. So, but I just kept my street name because my name was so clean coming into the game. I had so much respect, so I, I built it up to that far. So, shit, I wasn't changing it at that point. Okay, all right. I was wondering where that came from. I know I used to see you with glasses on, but yeah. I didn't know that that's how you got your name. Yeah. Okay, so let's pivot a little bit. So we recently celebrated 50 years of hip hop. Yeah. What has changed in hip-hop since you first started? Um, the artistic expression of it? Uh, I guess nothing for the most part. I mean, besides how it's sold and marketed. You know, the, the, uh, the platform's changed. When I put out my first CD in January 2005, there was no YouTube. Mm. Fast forward 18 years later... You know, YouTube has spawned a lot of evil genius kids off. You know, Spotify and Tidal and Apple and all kind of streaming. And that's how you deliver music for the most part. Um, that has became the mainstream way of delivering music. So I, I think hip-hop hasn't really changed. I just think the way it's marketed and delivered has changed. There's so many different ways to... When something happens to your kitchen, you might say... This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludacris. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Live right now. Um... We don't all go to one source to see it. Like, we used to go to MTV or BET. That's over. Same thing, you know, same benefactors of, you know, YouTube as a streaming platform and YouTube as a social media site. YouTube became the, the revolution itself, and it spawned off a lot of 
bastard kids, to say the least. Okay. So let's discuss how you got into music. Who were some of your influences that got you to start rapping? It, the only person who really would be my little brother, K-Style. K-Style is the reason I started rapping. Um, he had just got out of YA, Youth Authority, which is like prison for teenagers. And uh, my mom wanted me to keep him out of trouble. And he came home with a desire to rap. That was his thing. He wanted to be a rapper. He wanted me to rap with him and us to start a rap group. And that's for the most part how I started rapping as anything for real. I didn't rap in high school. That's why it took me so long to get good, you know. Um, so it really wasn't other rappers I was listening to. It was really just my brother having this desire, you know, about uh, wanting to be a rapper. Mm -hmm. That's how I got into rap. What's up, classmates? Are you an artist, producer, creator, entrepreneur, and you're looking to get more content and exposure? Check in with us at the Progress Report. In addition to that, we also offer promo packages. So if you want to get an interview or you want to get your product placed on the Progress Report, make sure y'all shoot us a DM or just email us at admin at tprmediagroup.com. So DM or email us today for your interview on the Progress Report. Let's go. The Progress Report. That's dope. Supporting your brother. Okay. So you grew up in the prime of many prominent West Coast figures. How, in your eyes, did the West Coast impact hip-hop? We put, uh, we put lead in these niggas' pencils. Um, we gave them attitude. I mean, they didn't have as much attitude until, uh, you know, until, we, until we showed up. Shout out to Public Enemy and a lot of other dope, really revolutionary groups, but the, the, the true like, uh, attitude era started with us. You know, we became the attitude. And I think that's what the West Coast is known for. Like, we the rowdiest niggas in the country. So we, we made sure everybody kind of had to soldier up and, and, and stand guard, you know what I mean, and be on deck for whatever could happen in your life. So I, I think we brought the most attitude to the, to the artistic expression of the culture. Okay. So when you were coming up, I mean, you came up with Snoop, you know, Warren G, things like that, people like that, right? So how did you navigate in the industry? And what lessons did you learn? I didn't come up. I listened to them. Them niggas were superstars by the time I thought about rapping. Mm -hmm. They way before me. Um, when I came up, the first year I released my CD is me, Nipsey Hussle, J-Rock, Problem, Bishop Lamont, Maestro. Uh, Kendrick came out the next year with his first CD. So that's my era, guys. I, um, how do we navigate for the most part? Uh, shit. It, it was, we had to figure out a lot of stuff on our own. Mm -hmm. you know, we didn't really have the, the legends kind of take us under their wing and kind of navigate us. We, we kind of had to figure it out as we were moving, as we were doing what, what we were doing. Like we had to figure it out. Um, one thing I pride about my class of people, you know, J-Rock, Nip, Bishop, you know, Mikey, everybody, we established a different connection with New York that nobody before us had. So we really kind of put that bond back in place with L.A. and New York because it was obviously a fracture from the generation, you know, the, the people before. This is true. Um, for the 15 years before we got into hip-hop, you know, it wasn't necessarily the friendliest relations, ideally, between the East and the West, but 
again, when Slauson Boy came out, when White Lightning came out, when, when J-Rock CD first came out, when Bishop first CD came out, we start going to New York and building with the brothers over there. Mm -hmm. And so that's why that relationship is top tier the way it is now because of our generation, we did that. So how did you guys bridge that gap? Like what was, how did you guys navigate through that? Because it was so much turmoil with the East Coast, West Coast beef. So how did you guys get over there and it was smooth? We went. We just showed up. We just showed up and they got the vibes and, and whatever it was, it was, it was uh, natural. It wasn't nothing that we had to try hard. We just started fellowshipping and we found common bonds. Um, they started to gangbang and different ideas and certain things about music we realized we liked and we all just connected. And, and ever since the relationship between, you know, the West Coast and the East Coast has been stellar. And I can definitely say my class of guys made that happen from the West. That's true. We did that ourselves. Okay. So going back, what do you think the reason the East Coast, West Coast beef started in your opinion? I don't really think there was ever a beef. I think... I mean, it had to be some kind of beef because I was just listening to a trade interview where, you know, him, Snoop, and all those guys was in the trailer shooting New York in New York and somebody was shooting at them inside of a trailer. So I, ha I have to take it a little bit more serious ever since I heard him say that. But um, I think they were just really competitive. I think Bad Boy and Death Row was competing for the top spot in the music industry and it just bled over to the streets a little bit, kind of incorrectly. But it was all for, you know, hip hop supremacy to be the best label with the best records. And um, it kind of just bled over, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. to those small ideas. But I don't really like to think of it as a beef. You know, I think it was just a misunderstanding, except some people got shot at. And I guess, yeah, that, that's crazy. I think getting shot at would, would consider that to be a little beef. Well, ironically, I don't think Trey D ever held any ill feelings towards anybody from the East Coast after that. I mean, maybe there was a window where he was like, yeah, I'm not <clears throat> fucking with none of that. But uh, Snoop never kind of let that, you know, mold him. I don't think Corrupt ever let that stop him. Um, Daz was always kind of, well, they was kind of in the middle of it. So, I mean, it could kind of be. I mean, I just, I, I need to ask them more to, to really be able to comment on know what what really they felt at that time i i remember lv told me a story where they kind of rolled up on lv um lv sang the hook on coolio's gangsta paradise that was actually lv's song gangsta's paradise uh lv is somebody from off the east side like me from a community that's close to mine and he was like yeah them dudes rolled up on me and he's like it's gonna be on so there is a little bit more to talk about it than we probably have talked about it yeah. and there's probably some real situations i just don't know them all but I think it was all in hip-hop supremacy, trying to rule the space that we call hip-hop music. And that's where I think most of the, the problems came from. Okay, so some of those OGs are some of your closest, I would say, people in the industry. Sure. Like Quick, I'm sure you yeah. have a good relationship with Quick. And So tell me, what is some advice that you've received? Because I'm sure they gave you some game. So give me a piece of advice that you've been given. Yeah. Um... It's weird because the relationship with all of the all of all of my predecessors, all the legends that I grew up listening to, and now that I get to ask questions to, um, 
to me, it's more about getting them to tell you stories because they're not the traditional style of teacher. They don't really teach like teachers. Um, yesterday, I was texting back and forth with Too Short, and he put me up on the first two or three Bay Area rap records. That was like special. You know what I'm saying? Um, he really made sure. And it wasn't advice he gave me, just telling me his journey. I understood exactly why I had to do certain things, like tripling down on the culture itself. Like Ice Cube, I mean, excuse me, Too Short was telling me the story about how when he first started rapping, he looked at New York and thought about trying to do it or tried to do some stuff and was like, this is not going to work. Like he had to be Too Short from Oakland. You know what I mean? And he just started building his whole reputation in that community of Oakland, San Francisco, by being the Oakland's rapper, being the Bay Area's rapper. And that always went to my mind, like I need to be, I need to be a representative of the culture. I need to be a representative of all Crips, or all Bloods, or anybody that's in the culture of the life. He made sure I tripled down on the culture. Um, Ice-T, Ice-T told me don't change. You know, he was like, yo, I had to, it's a longer route, you know, being yourself, you know what I mean? But it'll work for you in the long run. And most of the advice I get from them is them just telling me their stories so I can see what went right for them from their perspective. Very rarely do they say, hey, this is what you should do. You know what I mean? That's just not how DJ Poole or Dr. Dre or... Snoop Dogg, they don't, or Ice Cube, they don't, Mac 10, they don't talk like that. Mac 10 always, you know, he be like, yo ass is too street. You know, so. It's weird when somebody who talked about smoking shine tell me I'm too street. But uh, I, I get their point. So I learned a lot from just them telling me their stories. Even if I never tell other people the story, you know, I need to know and it, it, it guides you in the right direction. Okay, for sure. All right, so tell me, do you think that there's a there's a level of ageism when it comes to hip hop? Um, what's your take of rappers? Oh, you're over thirty. So, sure. what's your take on rappers who just start at this age? What do you think that that how do how do you think that affects their music today? Do you feel like they're so relatable? You either good or you not. People convince themselves that. Your age matters. Somebody 16 don't want to listen to nobody. Don't nobody want to be no little kid. You know I mean, like growing up, you didn't want to be nobody else that was 16. I mean, even the most successful 16-year-olders, that wasn't successful enough. Um, you look up to much more successful people. You know what I mean? I think it's easy to look at if you young to look at young boy and be like, I want to be young boy. I mean, I think that's very simple to do. But I think for the most part, most people 16, 17, they look up to the most successful people. And, and the most successful people that they're aware of. So um, ageism in hip hop is really, you know, about the, the artists themselves who are that, are you willing to do what it takes? See, when you start getting 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, you might not be willing to do what it takes. You might not be willing to do what it takes. Mm -hmm. It's a different thing. I, the reason it's a young man game is not because young people are better than old people. It's because young people are willing to do it and older people aren't. Don't nobody want to fly out to this motherfucker in the cold and be out in a random Airbnb 
feel me, doing interviews and podcasts and fellowshipping. You know, 8 is not trying to leave his house. MC8 is chilling. Dr. Dre is chilling. They are not trying to go nowhere. And hip-hop is all about fellowshipping through all the other communities, hitting all the ghettos, you know, sitting down with all the brothers, all the sisters, and, and popping it, and, you know, being at the party, you know, watching how people move at the party. It just happened to be young people at the party, but, you know, there's no way Dr. Dre, if Dr. Dre goes to DJ at a party for three months, won't catch the pace of life and what to do musically. He would know exactly what to do. But ageism happens when Dr. Dre just, I don't feel like going to that funky ass fucking club. I'm too fucking grown. Right. I mean, so ageism is a personal thing. I don't think it's about how the audience feel towards you. You know, I think it's how you start to feel about what you need to do within the actual business and the art itself. Okay, that's dope. So let's speak on cancel culture and your latest album, Cancel These. Discuss the title meeting. Cancel these nuts. Okay, let's start over. Let's speak on your let's speak on cancel culture and your latest album, Cancel These Nuts. These nuts. Period. Okay. Discuss Uh, the title meaning. Same thing. It's just a it's just a total disdain for cancel culture and you know council culture is using fake black outrage to lynch niggas. I've talked about this enough to get to this finish line. It's using fake black outrage to allow white power structures, which is not white people, not all y'all white people, I mean white money to economically lynch black men. I hate it. I think it's crazy. I think it's lame. And I, I, I don't know what the solution is because, you know, you, you have black people on social media attempting to look right or, or correct in front of white people. And so they, you know, they want to look like they're on the side of righteousness, but then it creates a space for you to economically lynch another brother. So obviously it is the worst thing in the world to me. Um, I could talk shit about the brothers who are being economically lynched for, you know, selling themselves to the power structure and, you know, allowing these morality clauses to exist just to get some money. When you know we don't behave the same way, when you know our communities don't run the same way and their standard of existing don't mean it's right or or nothing. You know, if you don't think that, you know, the the CEO of Pepsi might have gotten to a skirmish with his old lady, then you retarded or you don't know women. So. It's, it's one of those things where this album is just a disregard for what everything that everybody feels you can't say and do. You know, I'm not depending on Pepsi to pay one bill. And if Pepsi did want me to advertise their product, they would have to take Glasses Loke how Glasses Loke is. It wouldn't be, I'm going to be whoever you want me to be to get no money. And if that means I'm not going to get that money, I'm okay with it. You don't need more than a million dollars a year anyway. Okay. Who needs more than $100,000 a month? What you need to buy? Ain't that serious. Okay. So the artwork on your album, explain the meaning. A lot of people aren't really well-versed in Crip and the Loke and things like that. So explain the meaning behind the artwork. So the artwork itself is really just saying I'm willing to be jailed for, for the rights of freedom of speech. It's okay. I'll, I'll sit right up in there and do my time. Me, but I'm going to say what I want to say. Um, 
the LOC is really an acronym, the LOC, Light of Christ. It's just a willingness to shine light on anything that's a fact-based, no matter how everybody else feel about it. They can kiss my ass. That's what the LOC is all about. Okay, so tell me, define the LOC again. Tell me what that means. The Light of Christ. So what made you drop now? Why was it important for you to drop now? It was just it was just time. It was finished. It was ready. The meal was ready to be served. Like I, I made these tacos and I put them out on the table. I was cooking and I kind of just didn't decide that I just wanted to cook anymore without knowledge or experience. You know what I'm saying? I wanted to learn more about food. So as I cook it, I understood more about how to unlock flavor and ingredients. And I wanted to know the history of the cuisine and you know, everything about hip hop. I wanted to know it. And I wanted to put myself in, a, in the best position possible to, to, to do the business needed to sustain, you know, uh, 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 you know, to sustain like uh, uh, earning. So I took the time to learn everything I could about hip hop records and marketing and you know, it's time now. Now I was in there cooking up and dinner is served. It's time to come to the table and eat. Okay. Well, I think that your your album is is needed for the culture, for sure. Um, would you consider people to be more sensitive now when it comes to music and things that are said in music? Fake sensitive. Okay. People don't. People really don't give a fuck. Like, if you look at it, it's homeless people in Atlanta. And they'd be 29 degrees. You can't no way possible think you are a humane person Atlanta as a city or LA as a city could not consider themselves humane if they allow people to sleep on the street in the cold. If the whole city ain't came together, if every successful person in these places, if every state and every city ain't came together to make sure people at least have a warm place to sleep at night starting there, no matter what it take, then they don't give a fuck. So they could lie to everybody else who gonna believe this silly shit. I don't care how much Lululemon donated. Y'all don't give a fuck. <coughs> I don't give a fuck. Y'all don't give a fuck. Y'all don't give a fuck about humans because there's no way possible motherfuckers shouldn't at least be sleeping in the cold. It should be no way possible motherfuckers are sleeping in the cold. I, I was driving through this motherfucker. It's 20-something because a nigga laid in the cold. You can't tell me that. Is there, you cannot be a good human base of human beings if you allow that to happen. I don't give a fuck if you got to force the motherfucker to sleep in somewhere warm. And I feel like that's the same thing in Los Angeles. Like, if you look at the population, there's no reason why people should be sleeping in the cold. I could at least see if it was the summer. How the fuck you doing it in the cold? Yeah, that's one of the issues in Georgia. The homelessness is is That ain't is Georgia, huge. that's America. Well, yeah, that's true. It's just different. You know, back home you have different resources that out here they don't have. It ain't enough resources with all that, with all that money and all the resources. All these people who don't want to sleep outside in the winter are still sleeping outside in the winter. So they are doing a horrible job with the resources. And they should be ashamed of their funky-ass self. For real. Human beings at the top level really should look in the mirror every day. But, of course, they don't have to see them homeless people, so they don't give a fuck. Okay. All right. So speaking of cancel culture, right? So where do you stand with people who, you know, canceled R. Kelly. You openly still support him. So, and Kevin Samuels, Boosie, and people like that. So, Limba Chicken Chow Min, Reta, aka Big Wara. 
Yo, it's Big Fred, aka Daddy Tuzawadi Podcast. Kiki Tubafetu, and we are the Sobering Podcast. Tune in to us every second Wednesday for fire conversations and interviews about South African music, sneakers, and street culture. Check us out on the Revolt Podcast Network. Shout out to our moms. Discuss how people respond to you in not falling into the cancel culture and still supporting these artists. Well, that's Joey Westside line, so he's not here to articulate. Joey Westside said that on Cancel These Nuts. But uh, R. Kelly, I don't know if I ever supported R. Kelly. R. Kelly music jam. I play his music because it jams. <coughs> I don't really have to judge him because he's in jail. I don't need, he don't need to get right with me. He's in prison. So I'm playing his music. I could see if he was some nigga running around his motherfucker and he just on the streets and he ain't been held accountable for breaking all of these laws. And then I'm like, man, listen, that man in prison. So why hey, we ain't got no business not playing his music like something is wrong with him. It's a lot worse human beings. We support their business. You know what I mean? We buy all these fucking Nikes and they made by slave labor in China. We ain't got to talk about all the raggedy shit we do as humans. So again, it's this kind of space of like, well, I'm ignorant. No, you're not. You just selective politicking. You know what I'm saying? You just don't really give a fuck about humans. You just want to look right and have a talking point. So R. Kelly and Jill, I play his songs if I want to hear him. That's it. I don't support him. Now. I don't write cuz letters. I ain't putting nothing on his books. You know what I mean? Which I don't, you know, I don't, he not my childhood homeboy. So, you know what I mean? So it's like, I just, it's not the end of the world because he's guilty of a crime. Okay. All right. So where do you stand with the whole Diddy allegations? What's your opinion? What allegations? I ain't really seen no criminal allegations at all. All I see is a bunch of people trying to get some money out of Diddy for whatever purpose they all say. I ain't seen one criminal charge at all. Again, cancel culture is when fake black outrage is used by the power structure to economically lynch black people. That's the only thing happening. This nigga ain't been brought up on no crime, no charges this whole time. But all of a sudden, this nigga is the greatest rapist in the history of men or whatever they saying he is. I don't believe that shit. I just think people want Diddy down. I mean, people tired of seeing Diddy win. And at this point, it's like, you know, it's like everybody tuning in to watch Floyd Mayweather fight because they wanted him to lose. Ain't nobody really celebrating Floyd Mayweather being successful in this white power structure. That's just a lie. Feel me? So as far as Diddy and shit... Man, that shit ain't nothing. What are we talking about? He got into a fight with his girlfriend? I don't fucking care. I mean, him and Cassie got into a fight. He won once. Maybe he lost the second one. I don't fucking care. I don't fucking care. If he break a law, cuz got to go to jail like I got to go to jail when I break a law. So I don't have nothing to say about no another man living his life trying to succeed. Or You know you know how hard it is to be in a relationship with a man. It's the same for a woman. You Actually, you know what it's like to be in a relationship with a woman. Women ain't no motherfucking joke. You might have to fire shit up once or twice or so. You know what? Or you might have to return fire. You know how y'all get out? Y'all can get hella violent and it just could be on. I'm Look, I get it. We in the white world, so we like to lie and act like niggas. Don't. You know how I get it. You know how you done took off on a nigga or two? I ain't never slap took off on a nigga. Never. I keep my hands to myself. It's important to do that. So long, yeah. As long as you do that, then that's cool. Right. I can see if you fighting your old lady because of coffee hot, but then... If she sucks somebody else's dick and you slap her, I'm not, I, I ain't judging you. You, know, you might go to jail, but I'm not judging you. I understand, brother. If, if your man cheated and he, he fucked somebody else and shit and you slap him, I ain't mad at you, sister. I get it. 
you know, you might go to jail, but you know, that's how I go. All right, so let's go back really quick to your album. Discuss getting Samuel L. Jackson on the project. How did they come about? That's a, that's a skit from a film. That's from Django. I just wanted him to be credited. You know what I mean? I wanted people to know who exactly was talking. I didn't want to just take his words and shit. And not even just from a legal precedent, because that's easy to clear with the film, but I wanted people to see that that's who was talking. That's just important when people look and they're like, okay, these are the people that might have had inspiration in these songs. Okay, so tell me, let's discuss this. Your song, Kanye Should Have Never Married That Bitch. Yeah. Okay, tell me how you even came up with the title. You know what? I was studying Panic at the Disco. Panic at the Disco used to have these very long titles. And they used to didn't even make sense with the songs. And I was looking at playlisting you know, on Spotify, and I knew I would have some play with playlisting through Spotify and Apple. So I said, what can you really see? And I realized the picture was really small. Even putting features, the names was really small. The only thing you could really see big was the title of the song. And um, there was a song, you know, coincidentally, by Extentacion, Rest in Peace. And it was a song about uh, something about Miami and going to meet the devil or something like that. Some kind of cornball shit. But I just remember how long that title was. But I was like, damn, this song got a lot of streams. I was like, people were reading the title. And then I thought about that and it triggered a thought to some groups I remember in high school, Panic at the Disco. And they used to have these hella long titles. And I'm like, yo, I need to make a long title for this song. Because the chorus that Jelly Roll came up with was really simple. You know, and I was like, if I title it uh, The Streets or Belongs to the Streets, people in Atlanta at that time didn't know what that meant. You know, it was a very Los Angeles thing to say at that time. People in Ohio or in Idaho, quite a, you know, they might have didn't understand that, you know, slang in a space where so many different songs. So I wanted to give somebody more. I wanted to say, okay, this song is this song, but let me tell you the greatest example of this song being correct. So I went to the greatest idea, right, which is Kanye West should have never married that bitch. The song is that bitch, right? Kanye West should have never married that bitch because you cannot turn a hoe into a housewife. It made sense to me. It was like an equation, and it was like, correct. Were you at all concerned about the backlash of saying that or having that as a title? They want to fade or something? Want to fight? They may. I mean, so, listen, if, if you if ain't want to be like, man, Glass, I need that fade, I, I'd give it to him fair. You know what I mean? That'd be fair. But I don't think that's what he's thinking. I know that's not what he's thinking. I know he like, this motherfucker, it was right. So uh, I'm sure Kim could feel some kind of way. And people have brought up her kids. I'm like, well, if she was worried about what her kids think, she wouldn't be, the song wouldn't be ringing true to point in the first place. They got to deal with a lot worse things than Glasses Malone saying, your daddy should have never probably married your mother. They, they, it's some way worse shit online with their mom than that. That's true. So what's your thoughts on women getting BBLs? I hate it. I think it's horrible. It looks horrible. Not all of them look Everyone. bad. Some of them Every look good. Every last one look horrible. I just have bad taste as a sex. Y'all just have bad taste. That's also, even if you think about makeup, like y'all have this really ridiculous idea of beauty that's very standard based off of where you at in time. 
Like whatever's going on now, y'all are just beauty to that time. It's actually horrible. Like y'all accentuate everything. Y'all think the long eyelashes look cute. Y'all like it, so that's the only thing that matters. Long as long as y'all like it. But if a guy like is dating you and he wants you to BBL, he really don't like you. Cause why would he let you change yourself up? Who are you? So it can't be where a woman just she wants to enhance or she's always wanted a big butt, she didn't have one. It's a reason why God God didn't give her the legs for it. You know what I mean? Like I came from an era cause where the pretty girls had pretty faces. They probably have no titties and no ass, but they have pretty ass faces. If they had big ass titties, they had cool faces and no ass. If they had a big ass, they probably had no titties and a decent looking face. And if you had big titties and big asses, you for sure was ugly. And it's a reason that God separated beauty that way. He understood you cannot give one person all that power. That's why historically there's never been a person built like that. Holly Berry, she didn't have no ass like that, little titties. She was fine. Nia Long had some ass, cute face, no titties. But then women in, in 20, you know, coming forward now, they just trying to have it all. And now they just look like weird science, like the movie. Okay. So what's your take on marriage? Do you think that, do you see a benefit in being married? Being married is awesome. I think, I think so marriage too. works. Uh, I, I get it. I, we, we've talked about this. You know what I've came up with? Love like marriage, you have to find somebody you want to give everything to and not get anything from. You have to be okay with giving everything to them and then be okay with not getting anything from them. If you marry somebody for anything outside of that, as far as black people, it's going to work out back. If you marry somebody for what you're going to get, most likely they're going to stop giving that to you. So love, marriage, is all about what you see. You find somebody worthy of giving everything to they got to be worried. You got to be like, man, I don't know. You got to look at this motherfucker and be like, man, when they tripping, do I still want to give them everything? And if that ain't that person, you probably shouldn't bury them. Okay. Okay. So you feel as though when you decide to marry somebody or you decide to get with somebody, you have to do it selflessly where you don't really expect anything. You just want to do the giving and have no expectations for that person. That's love. Love is all about giving. Nothing about love is receiving. I mean, nothing about love is receiving. Everything about love is giving. Give love. You could do the nicest thing for somebody, right? And if it could be something that you think is the greatest thing in the world, you would love if somebody did it for you, and they might not think it's love. They might be like, they might not receive it that way. So love is all about giving. Everything about love is nothing is about receiving. Nothing about love is receiving. Everything about love is giving. The greatest love most people find is when they have children. And you know them motherfucking, you know, you give them motherfuckers everything. They don't give you shit. They give you the worst gifts, you know, but it could be like something they wrote with macaroni. You be like, this is fantastic. You didn't get their $2,000 worth of gig, video games and shit. You finna get this macaroni card because you understand how love work at that point. You know what I mean? I think we talked about this before, but people go into to being a parent for the most selfish reasons. They want a product of their love. I, I, you think you're so great, you want to leave a little bit of yourself. Like, nigga, we can do without your bloodline. <laughs> nigga, you ain't brought nothing to society. I just leave a little bit of myself here. Like, but 
it'd be the most selfish reason going into it. And them kids turn you into the most selfless version of yourself you will ever see. You'll be just sitting down and have to get your ass up. You know what I mean? You'll just, you know, you, you do not want to eat McDonald's tonight, but this motherfucker is screaming in the back seat at them dumb ass arches and you got happy meal now you eating chicken nuggets for dinner. You eating chicken nuggets for dinner and that's why you know, parenting for most human beings teaches them love. You know what I'm saying? And love is rooted in selflessness. It's not rooted in, you know, what somebody is doing for you. It's about who you want to do something for or what you it's, it's about giving. It ain't really about receiving. Okay. All right, so let's pivot a little bit. So recently we saw in the news about Keefe D. Sure. Okay, so what are your feelings towards the Tupac and Keefe D situation? Do you believe he killed Tupac? I don't think he killed Tupac. I think uh, I think somebody in the car with him, you know, was the, the person that might have fired the, the bullets. But I think business settled in the streets when two people participate in that type of underground activity. It should be left there. I understand why the government can't do it. You know what I mean? They have to try to keep a society that's organized and, and together. But I think when shit happened in the streets, it should be left there. If two people conduct themselves, you know, beneath the legal, you know, the legal ramifications, shit, leave it there. You know, but again, you know, I'm sure it's a lot of people that's, that's Tupac family, you know, that's like, you know, they don't care about none of that shit. They like, I just want justice. to feel better to get justice. So, you know, from my perspective, it's a lot different than everybody else's. So what do you think is going to be the outcome of that? If you don't think that he did it, what do you think the outcome of his, him being arrested would be? Well, in California, you know, if you are, you know, uh, if, if you're around when a murder is convicted, you're, you're, you know, when a murder is committed, you're, you know, they'll make you guilty of the murder, too. Like felony murder is when you actually don't pull the trigger, but you just, you assist or you're around, you know, you're involved with a crime. So um, I would imagine Nevada has something quite like that. Um, as far as this case, I don't really know the, uh, I need to see the discovery, all the evidence. I don't think it's these interviews. I don't think it's all these interviews. I think that's a lie. I don't think that was enough to get a, 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 a an indictment, you know, from the grand jury is these Vlad, they, I'm not thinking they in the Vlad courtroom watching interviews. Like, you know what, indict that nigga now because he said that. I don't think that's, because Puffy are being indicted for that shit. So I think there's more to the uh, discovery, the evidence that we know, and as the trial, you know, takes place, we'll see what happens. But I pray for the best outcome. You know, I'm uh, Keefe don't look really healthy. You know what I mean? And you know, I, dying in prison definitely ain't really the thing. Okay. So your video, Tupac, Tupac must die. Break down that video. Well, really, it was an artistic take on uh, Los Angeles street urban morality. We all understand that if you jump somebody, they most likely gonna come back shooting at you and we be like, damn, that's how I go. And none of us is gonna flinch. You know, the, 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 the community is not gonna be outraged because we know your ass went and jumped on them people. What was you thinking? You know, so uh, hip hop being street urban culture, one of the greatest aspects of culture that's not spoken of is morality. So I, I found a space to, to, to uh, get off an idea of what it's like being a crip in Los Angeles, morality-wise. Okay, all right, so let's pivot again. Are you signed? No. Okay, so talk to me about the grind of being an independent artist. It's horrible, it's like a lot of work. 
ton of work, ton of work. That's what here now, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable, it's, uh, it's tedious. It's, it's, it never looked like it's gonna be over. So you have to enjoy every day of it. Like I have to enjoy sitting down talking with you. I have to enjoy sitting at the Airbnb waiting on tacos that's never made. I have to enjoy um, restaurants, you know, trying restaurants. I have to enjoy uh, people's Netflix accounts. You know, when they got rated R blocks. You watch your kid movies. Yeah, it's tough. I don't feel like putting in my own Netflix account. Netflix account. You know. Nothing worse than not really going to a barbershop because you're scared they ain't going to be able to cut your hair right. You know, uh, it's, it's a serious grind, but you have to find a joy about just sitting down, fellowshipping with other black people, fellowshipping with other people that's invested in this thing that we call hip hop. And I was telling uh, Tiff earlier, it's like, my idea of winning is just succeeding at every juncture. Every juncture. Like if I'm gonna sit down and talk to McFly about hip hop, succeeding, having a great conversation, having something that emotionally moves the brother that's engineering the show, that emotionally moves the person who takes the picture or owns the studio. You know, succeeding at every juncture. And I think when I break it down that small, then I bask in that success, and then I prepare myself for the next one, that's really, you know, that's really what you have to kind of, to me, that's what you have to kind of make the independent grind for it to be, you know, digestible. So do you want to sign to a major label or would you prefer this way? I mean, EP, you know, Urban Pope will produce, you know, the album and, you know, we kind of came into this together. He made some points. It would definitely be dope to have partners so some of the burden could be lifted off. Um, I wish we had, you know, $5 million so we didn't need no fucking help, you know. But, you know, whatever people around me that's really into it as well, if they have something in it, whatever they think is a victory. So if it was signing a deal or partnering with somebody and it took, you know, some of the burden off, that's fine too. You know, right now I'm just focused on, you know, getting through the progress report right here and then going to the bus stop and having a successful showing and, and of Los Angeles street urban culture for, for the world to see. I love the bus stop. The dude is really cool. Okay, so let's pivot some more. So let's discuss <coughs> the subject of checking in. Sure. Okay, so do you think it's mandatory for rappers that come to L.A. to check in with the artists that are already in L.A.? I don't think it's mandatory. I just don't know what type of black person don't want a fellowship. That's like the whitest thing you could do. I came here, the first nigga I called was Killer Mike. Mike, nigga, I'm in your old neighborhood, nigga. Like, nigga, I ain't live over here. Yeah, this is all the same west side. I, I hit Big Boy, yeah, nigga, I'm over in the West End. Nigga, I took a picture when I was at uh, Stank On You. Yeah, nigga, I'm at your spot. You know, um, I hit Toon. I hit Zay, man, I'm around the way, cuz I'm, what's happening? What y'all niggas doing? Um, I think there's a, a thing in blackness with, with fellowshipping or checking in, you know, seeing what, what the brothers got going on, seeing if there's opportunities you could do to help brothers or seeing if brothers got opportunities to help you. I don't know what type of black man don't want to do that. You know, these new rap niggas is weirdos. You don't want a fellowship with other black people? That's just crazy. When I go to Philly, I want to just post up. Nigga, let's go to the cheese steak spot. Where the nigga? What's up, nigga? What we doing, nigga? I want to see the brothers. I want to see the life. I love black people. 
Okay, so what's your thoughts on P&B Rock? What, um, he, you know, recently was killed in L.A. What are your thoughts on that that whole situation? You feel bad. You know, a man got kids and his old lady and family and people that love him. Um, but I think the lesson is you just can't go in the ghetto wearing a bunch of you know, half a million dollars worth of jewelry. That's just, I don't care. You go to any ghetto wearing half a million dollars of jewelry, it could just be bad. People doing bad. And sometimes I think, you know, it's definitely a weird space of hip-hop, and I can't say this is him, but I've heard rappers brag about this, where it's like, oh, I'm going to wear all my jewelry in every ghetto like to show like you're some kind of you know, tough person or you're some kind of you know, looming presence. And it's like, nigga, that just, why would you want to have that much around poor people? Like something functionally wrong with you if you want to be around a bunch of starving people eating a steak dinner. And you just the only person eating everybody else starving. Because you can look around and see motherfuckers starving. So, um, as far as PNB, it's just a sad event. But I think the true takeaway from that situation is people are really still doing bad, and we have no business, you know, um, we're supposed to look like we can give an opportunity, not look like an opportunity for poor people. That's Agreed. my opinion. Okay, so what are your thoughts on Nipsey Hussle's death? He died in his own backyard, pretty much. So, what are your thoughts on that, and how did it affect you? Um, you know, it's the life we live. Death is, nobody's going to make it out this life alive. Some people, uh, Jesus and Nip died in their 30s. Some people make it to 40. Some people make it to 50. Some people make it to 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 110. We can say something's untimely. We can set a timetable that it just don't work that way. And... Um, his situation is tragic because uh, he was—he he felt like he had so much more work to do. But you know, you look up today and you see how much work was done when when you're not around, and it's like, you know, you can see how much work he really put in and how his spirit is really, you know, doing wonders for other human beings, making other black people start businesses. So I think he did an incredible job on Earth. Okay. So what are your thoughts on the Crips? And this is something that we saw online. So what are, th- what are your thoughts on the Crips trying to collect from him after his passing? Yeah, uh, you're talking about the corporation. Was it the corporation? I, I think that was a corporation. I thought that was cute. Um, I don't know. The Crips sounds so fucking flavor. But that's how everybody else in the rest of the country, they live the Crips. It's the Crips and the Bloods in Los Angeles. Well, this is Atlanta, so. Yeah. Well, they got Crips and Bloods out here. Everybody knows it's not the Crips. <laughs> It, it does sound hella digestible that way. Red versus blue, brother. You guys are fighting over colors. It's like, we fight over money and, and girls. You guys fight over colors. It's like, nah, we fight over the same shit. But however you got to digest it to make it work for you. All right, so let's talk about your relationship with the South. Sure. Back in 2009, you collaborated with DJ Greg Street for a mixtape and once dedicated a song to T.I. Sure. Talk to me about that. Um, I, Scarface is probably my favorite MC in the world. Uh, Pimp C is the first rapper that ever gave me credit, you know, nationally on a, on a huge platform. Uh, DJ Toomped produced my first hit record. Um, Cash Money Records gave me my greatest opportunity. You know, um, South, I'm black, you know what I mean? And when I come down south, I'm at home. Period, and it's gonna always be that way. And it never was not that, so it's gonna keep being that. It's always gonna be 
I love when we come down to these southern states because, you know, we're supposed to be here. We came from here. And, I mean, before we got off that, once we got off that boat, this is where we was at. So, you know, it's a good 500 here, 500 years, 400 years here. So talk to me about cash money and your situation with them. How it was, was dope. That? It was amazing. I learned, I learned work ethic. I learned how bad of a rapper I was and how hard I needed to be to be a really good rapper. That's what Cash Money Records was about. Outside of learning the business, I learned how bad of a rapper I was and how much work I needed to put, put in to be a really good rapper. I saw that the whole time. Okay, so let's talk about mass. Men against a sensitive society. That was a joke. We were just having fun clowning. And it ended up spawning something that I, I didn't realize was festering in men around the country and all the ghettos. They was like, this is my shit. So it made us have to re kind of step back. Like, okay, we need to go make more mass content. So we've been writing different ideas. So, you know, 2024, it's a, it's a complete movement, but it wasn't a real movement. It was an idea of a telethon for a music video, something for bitches, where we're telling men to leave some beauty standards for women. That's just they thing. And we just came up, I came up with this idea and it ended up catching fire, but we wasn't prepared for it because it was a joke. You know, we we didn't really look that deep into it. It was just like, we was making fun of niggas who was trying to steal girls' beauty standards. So that would be like clothes, nails, and things like that? Yeah, dresses, painting your nails, you know, niggas getting weaves. Um, niggas wearing anklets. You know, anything that women popularize through beauty standards, you know what I mean? Like, we was just teasing niggas and making fun of them, you know what I mean? But it ended up being a really important thing to see that so many men from, you know, all these different communities really, you know, was like, yeah, hell yeah, fuck these niggas, these niggas is bullshit. So, definitely, you know, as I shifted into third gear, you know, this marketing campaign for Cancel These Nuts, like it was something we took into account and we, you know, started to make a lot more content uh, for those people that 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 movement was starting to, to kind of cultivate. We, we need to keep cultivating that movement with content. It's real. It's, it's, it's not a, it's, it's serious. It's funny, but it's serious. OK, so you, on the Instagram page, you post a question. What are you fed up with? So tell me something that you're fed up with. Like the song say, I'm fed up with all these niggas justifying snitching. I'm fed up with all these niggas dressing like bitches. I'm fed up with fake niggas falsifying fixtures or doing Mickey shit for a like on the picture. I'm fed up that you claim to be a player, but you paying. Why is you paying if you're a player? I'm fed up that you ain't good in that hood that you claiming. I'm fed up um, that respect costs a hundred dollar bill. When money ain't never made a motherfucker real. It's, that's pretty much exactly what I'm fed up with. I'm just fed up with all the fakeness. So on the Cancel These Nuts album, what is your favorite track on that album? Favorite. My favorite. It changes so often. Stammy. Jim Daniel. Probably today is probably back to Tales of Whitney Plug, Tales, Tale of Whitney's Plug, which kind of tells the story of a drug dealer, like a, a drug dealer. Like you know the addiction of the addicts, but you don't know the addiction of the drug dealers. 
I feel like there's a huge space in, which is crazy, I feel like there's a huge space in D-boying that is not explained. And I'm starting to worry because most of these niggas ain't really D-boys. So they just talking about selling dope, but they really never sold enough dope to know about what it really feels like. So uh, that song was important, like to talk about how drug dealers feel trapped, like how the people closest to them start to push them to stay into the same business because they want to benefit off the lifestyle and they don't believe in you going legal like that. So that, that song is special. Okay. All right. So we ask all of our guests here the same question. This is our title question. What does the word progress mean to you? Progress. Uh, distance travel. I, I, the progress goes to me is how far you've come. Okay, and so tell me, how have you progressed as a person? Good, really good question. How, how about, I understand love a lot more, right? I understand that love is not about receiving anything. That's like huge. Um, and that is really kind of more in a line. Like there was a moment in my life where I didn't think love was real or it was for me. I didn't think like hip hop was for me. And, but I woke up one day and realized, or over this time of learning and reading and shit, I realized they actually fit my personality. I mean, so that's a blessing. And that, that created the greatest progression, the greatest distance travel. Okay. And this is my final question. What is hip hop? Street urban culture. You know, culture, culture, uh, Things from the ghetto, the artistic expression of ghetto people. Um, we needed that space to express ourselves, to put the world on notice, and hip-hop was just that. That's exactly what it is. And it's not racially driven? Do you feel as no, though... It's poor, it's poor people in those same ghettos. I mean, you look at hip-hop and, and, you know, it started one way, but then as, as people started to ask, other poor people started to ask seasoning, it's like L.A. might have was like hella special with soul food, but Mexican food is a part of Los Angeles culture. So it's, it's, uh, it's hard for culture to be rooted in, in, in. Here's a rap. The root of culture is not your skin. The root of culture is the land, that way of life you defend. So long as it's different people that live in them communities, that's where culture is created. So no, it's not a racial thing. It just happened to be we the star of the show of poor people, black people out here. Um, maybe something to do with oppression or something. I don't know. Something like that. Okay. Well, that's dope. Well, I appreciate you for skipping class with us today. Thank you. Thank you. The Progress Report. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois.